So it's a, it's a metaphor used to describe God that is drawn from the world of mothering. So, you know, the, the scriptures are replete with references to God as our father. And of course, many of you know that. We talk about that a lot. But we don't often think about God as our mother, And yet, it's interesting, in the Bible, there's actually a wide range of maternal imagery that is used to describe the activity of God. And so, for example, in Numbers and Deuteronomy, uh, the, the scriptures speak about God conceiving and then bearing in his womb and then giving birth and then nursing his people. That's all, of course, maternal imagery. And then in the book of Hosea, God is used, or God is described as a mother who feeds her infant and who teaches her child how to walk and who heals uh, his wounds. Uh, These are metaphors that are drawn from the world of mothering that are used to describe God. And of course, these metaphors not only teach us something about God, they also teach us something about the value, the, prior, the dignity of mothering. I mean, if, if the scriptures uh, draw upon the imaging of mothering to, to describe the activity of God, it is elevating, it's dignifying, it's honoring this, this very important role of mother. And I think it's important for us to pause and just emphasize that because we live in a culture that idolizes, it um, exalts uh, all kinds of other roles. It awards large salaries and celebrity to superstar athletes and to pop stars. But very often the role of mother is denigrated or neglected and it simply is just not honored. But in contrast to that, in the scriptures, we find God utilizing the world of mothering to describe his own work and activity and relationship with us, his people. Now, of course, uh, the, the world of mothering is not the only space that is drawn upon to describe the activity of God. Uh, and, and of course, it is true that uh, the dominant metaphor in Scripture to describe God and his activity is that of Father. And there are reasons for that that I won't go into here. But whether we're talking about father or mother, we just need to be clear that when we use these categories, we're using metaphors to describe the activity of God. Uh, We are using human analogies and human language in order to help us better understand who God is. But let's just be clear on one thing. Uh, God, although he is described as as father, he's described in in mothering categories, God is neither in his essence in being male or female. In fact, there's a passage in Hosea chapter 11 where God says point blank, I am God. Uh, The word for God in Hebrew is El. He says, I am El, God, and I am not, he says, Ish, which is the Hebrew word for male. He says, I am God and not a male. And of course, God is there isn't saying that he's female. God in his very essence is neither male nor female. In fact, it takes both maleness and femaleness to bear the image of God. Back in the beginning in Genesis, it says that God made them male and female in his image. And I suspect it says them because it took both maleness and femaleness to even begin to bear something of the image of the divine. And so we are talking here about metaphor. We're talking here about human language to describe the activity of God. And so we just need to be clear that although we are using human categories to describe God's activity, human categories and human language is insufficient to bottle up and to capture the fullness that that infinite ocean of eternity and love and beauty and being that is God. 
Our human categories are insufficient, and yet they are sufficient enough to communicate to us something. It's as if God says, in, in my own love, I'm gonna give you analogies. I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you pictures. I'm gonna give you even your own human language to understand something of me and how I wanna relate to you. And here in the text that we're looking at in, in Psalm 57, he draws upon the image, uh, an image drawn from the world of money or mothering that I think is so arresting. It's beautiful, it's interesting, and it's found right here in Psalm 57. And so this morning, what I wanna do is invite you to consider this image and I want you to see just how powerfully this image might speak to you and where you find yourself this morning. We have been in a series over the last couple of weeks called Centered in the Chaos. And what we've been talking about is we've been talking about how to center on our own hearts and our own lives in the life and heart of God so that we might find stability in the midst of our chaotic times we find ourselves in. And here, this image, it really gives us a picture of, of one of the, the characteristics, one of the qualities of God that helps us find center in the midst of the chaos. And the image is found in Psalm 57, verse one, and here's what it says. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I was uh, reading this chapter this week and I noticed in the text uh, that it, it said that um, uh, David is praying that he would find his refuge in God. And I also noted that uh, it says in the little superscription that this was when David fled from Saul in a cave. We're gonna talk about that in a minute. But when I heard about fleeing in a cave, I thought refuge referred to hiding in a cave to find shelter from like storms and whatnot, which is what you would do in the ancient world if you're out running in the wilderness and you need a place for safety and security. Uh, I guess if, if uh, you were running out in the woods right now and you needed a place for safety and security, a cave would be a good place for that. And I thought that's what he meant when he said, I take refuge. And then when it says, in the shadow of your wings, I take refuge, I thought, my assumption immediately was that that's a Hebrew idiom to describe kind of a feature of the cave, you know, where you might find shelter. Uh, but then I opened up the commentators, and what almost all of the commentators agree on is that this idiom or this, this phrase is not drawn from the world of geology or of caves. Uh, it is actually drawn from the world of of mothering. And uh, it, it's specifically used to describe a mother bird, like a mother hen or a mother duck who gives shelter to her young. And so some of you have seen images like this. Actually, online you can see images like this um, of, uh, you know, a duck with little chicks under her wings. You know, um, I saw this image as well. I found this one kind of funny because this is a very bedraggled uh, uh, hen and she looks like just exhausted and tired and uh, she could probably be off like uh, hiding herself away in a nice shelter, but no, she's got to stay here with her kids and shelter them, you know? But this is, of course is what mothers do is they put their own bodies, their own self, their own livelihood out to protect and to care for and provide for their children. And um, so this is the image, you know, that's kind of being uh, drawn upon here in our text. And it's being used to describe the activity of God. 
God is saying, look, I am like that mother hen who shelters her young. Uh, I am like that mother hen who puts her own body out and in the way to be a substitute, to be a protection from all of the storms and from predators and from everything that threatens their life. God is saying, this is what I am for my people. This is what I will be for you. And David knows that. And David in this Psalm says, God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge. Now, I don't know about you, but when I see slides like that, when I hear uh, verses like this, they can almost begin to sound cliche because in our, you know, kind of our evangelical subculture, it is these kind of verses and these kind of images that often wind themselves or find their way onto our refrigerators into little calendars, you know? Uh, these are calendar verses, you know, a picture of a, of a mother hen sheltering her young and under the shadow of your wings, I will find uh, my, my shelter. And we might think, oh, isn't that precious, you know? And then if you're cynical, you'll say that's so cliche. But I think what is, is important to note is that when these words were written, they were nothing like a calendar verse that was cliche. In fact, they were written in a very, very dark and a very, very terrible time. And so you need to kind of understand something of the backstory of the psalm to understand the true significance and weight of these words and how they might address you. So the backstory is this. Um, it's given to us in the superscription at the very top of the psalm. Uh, you can see it there, to the choir master, according to do not destroy, that's probably a tune that it was gonna be sung to or put to. And then it says, a mitcam of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. And so here, uh, it, it's telling us that this psalm wants to be read against the backdrop of a story that's taken from the life of David. Now, as the story goes, David, uh, young David, courageous David, you know the story. He kills Goliath and he saves Israel from certain doom. And the king of Israel at the time, Saul, he sees what David has done. He's like, oh, this guy is awesome. I'm gonna put him at a high post in my military. I'm gonna let him marry my daughter and uh, I'm gonna bring him into the very inner sanctum of my, uh, my, my power structure here in my kingdom. And so he brings David in. And then Saul, of course, is temperamental. And so David provides music for Saul, you know, in his troubled, depressed states. And so he's there playing his harp or whatever, you know, and uh, Saul is soothed. But then something happens. Something happens that destroys this burgeoning relationship between King Saul and young, powerful, strong David. Uh, there's this new song that is put out and uh, Saul hears it on Spotify or Pandora or something and everyone is listening to it and people were on their feet and they're dancing on the streets all night long and it was a good song and Saul probably heard the melody, he was kind of getting into it, but then, it, and then he heard this, it went like this, the chorus went like this, Saul has slain his thousands. And Saul's probably like, you know, Saul has slain his thousands, you know, but then it goes, but David has slain his ten thousands. Oh, 
Now all of a sudden, Saul, who needs to be seen as the one on top, the one who is great, the one whose kingdom is awesome, the one who's always on charge, who's calling the shots and in power. Now the guy who's not even like second in command, this guy is getting all the power. He's getting all the glory. He's getting all the accolades. The, 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 everyone's dancing in the streets, singing about David and his 10,000s. And this enraged Saul and his ego and his jealousy and his anger, it enrages him. And he, one day he's there, David is playing a harp, you know, in front of him, soothing him, but it does nothing for his rage. And he's fingering his spear and he picks it up and he chucks it at David. It misses by a hair and David thinks, I got to get out of here and he leaves. And he goes on the run out in the wilderness all throughout Judea. And while he's out there, he picks up kind of a band of uh, a ragtag band of, of, of guys who are going to come alongside of him and help be his kind of uh, his bodyguard troop while he's out there. And meanwhile, Saul is on the hunt for David. And so much of the story of David is a story of him being chased like an animal by the armies of Saul. And here where we pick up the story, David, who has now been estranged from his father-in-law and his wife, and he's been kicked out of his post in the kingdom, and he's lost everything, and now he's out on the run, and he's being chased by the armies of Israel, is now out hiding, in, and he's in a cave, and it's here. When his life is under threat by all of these people around him who are coming after him, that he prays these words, that he seeks God as a mother hen who is gonna give protection and comfort to her chicks. And listen to the language that's used to describe his, his state. Notice again in Psalm 57, verse one, he says, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful, uh, for in you I take refuge. In the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge till, and notice the first metaphor, he says, till the storms of destruction pass me by. You know, you think about storms and these are natural disasters that threaten to undo our life. It might be a virus or a pandemic. It might be an earthquake or a tsunami, but it threatens your life. It's chaotic. It's out of your control. You can't do anything about it. I wonder if any of you have ever experienced something that you feel like you have no power over. You can't control. These are the storms, the destructive storms. And then he says down in verse four, he puts it like this. He not only talks about destructive storms that threaten him, he talks about lions and fiery beasts. He says, my soul is in the midst of lions. He says, I lay down amid fiery beasts. And I think what here he's doing is he, he, he's describing the hordes of men that have come after him. And rather than doing justice with their power, they use it to pursue somebody who is innocent. In other words, they have... Uh, betrayed themselves as those who bear the image of God and they have taken on animal instincts, instincts that are violent and destructive and ugly, the kind of instincts that might lead somebody to get into a truck and chase somebody down and then shoot them dead. And this is kind of like the lions and the fiery beasts. He says, this now is threatening me. And so he's threatened, he says, by the destructive storms, he's threatened by the lions and the fiery beasts. But then he says this, I'm also threatened by the children of men whose teeth are spears and arrows and whose tongues are sharp swords. Listen to that imagery. And what is he speaking about here? I think he's speaking about words that become a threat to us. Those words that pierce 
like a sphere or an arrow, those words that cut like a sword. I wonder if anyone's ever spoken words over your life that pierced your heart and wounded you deeply. Of course you have. I wonder if anybody who's ever spoken words over your life that cut like a sword and you have had a hard time healing from those wounds. I wonder if some of you not only have heard those voices from others, but I wonder how many of you speak those voices to yourself and those voices pose a threat to you. Those voices that say loser or fat or ugly or no good or worthless. And we are surrounded all around by threats things that, that, that create this world of chaos around us that we can't manage or we can't control. And sometimes it's related to natural disasters. And sometimes it's related to human beings that have betrayed their humanity and are acting like fiery beasts. And sometimes it comes from words that are, are destructive and, and that wound us and that, that hurt us. And what this text is saying is that wherever you find your life under threat, you are invited to come to God and to find a refuge. You are invited to come to God and hide underneath the shelter of his wings and find comfort and healing and security and love and stability in the midst of all of the chaos. But let's raise a question. What exactly does it mean? I mean, what does it mean to take refuge in God? You know, it's one thing to say, you know, go with all of your pain and difficulties and go take your refuge in God, but what exactly does it mean? Well, let's first say what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that God will take us out of the chaos. When we run to God as our refuge, it doesn't mean that God is gonna promise to keep us from difficulty and darkness and pain and all of the troubles and trials of our world. In fact, Jesus has promised just the opposite. He said, in this world, you will suffer tribulation. And I know sometimes we don't think that way. Sometimes we think, look, if I'm a follower of Jesus and I do the right thing and I can pray the right prayers and, and, I, and I'm obedient the way I should be, then God will protect my life from all the difficulties and I won't experience the darkness. And then when we do experience the darkness with that lie in the back of our heads, we think we've done something wrong. But Jesus would say, you've done nothing wrong. You have pledged yourself to a crucified Lord and who invites us to pick up our cross and to follow him on a road that is often marked by suffering. And so to find refuge in God doesn't mean that God's gonna remove us out of the chaos, out of the darkness, out of the suffering. But what it does mean is this, is that God's strong, steadfast love and faithfulness will sustain you through the chaos and through the suffering and through the darkness. I mean, we've all known people, haven't we? You know, there, there are those people when, even when their life is going well, it seems like there is no good reason for you to be complaining. And it seems like, you know, they've got the big bank account and they've got the nice marriage and the great kids and, and their life all seems to be going well, yet internally, they're just falling apart. They're a mess. But then we, we know those people, don't we? I mean, you've met these people who... They, their life is a disaster. They're in the midst of the harshest, like the most terrible things. And yet it seems like there is just a ballast for their soul. You know, they're stable in the midst of the chaos. And you're thinking, what, where do you find that? 
And what David says in the psalm is that you find it in the comfort under the shadow of God's wings. When you draw upon, when you lean into his steadfast love and faithfulness. I want you to see what he says in verse 10. Notice um, he makes a statement. It's, it's beautiful. And it's, it's as if he's saying, you know, as I go into the shadow of God's wings, I am comforted with God's steadfast love. He says in verse 10, for your steadfast love is great to the heavens and your faithfulness to the clouds. You know, we had a conversation around our dinner table a few weeks ago and we asked the question, or actually it was around a fire pit. We asked the question uh, kind of around the table or around the fire pits, um, what is your earliest memory of experiencing God? And one of my daughters said, I have a recollection of feeling afraid at night and praying to God and then feeling like a blanket of warmth. The warmth of God's love was wrapped around me in the midst of my fear. And I think that David is saying something like that. He's saying, look, the steadfast love of God is wrapped around me under the shadow of his wings and his steadfast love is great. He says, it's great to the heavens. He says, it's as if he says, look, uh, imagine, you know, the universe, the vast expanse and the beauty of all of the heavens. I mean, just think our Milky Way galaxy is 100 to 150 light years across. And current research indicates that the observable universe is perhaps 93 billion light years in diameter. And now David is saying here, God, your love is way, way, way beyond that. Its expanse is beyond even 93 billion light years in diameter. And that is rich and deep and beautiful love. But then he says this in verse three. He, he exudes confidence because he says, God will not only have this great expanse of his steadfast love, he says, God will send that love to earth to save me. Verse three, he will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. And it's as if David is saying here, look, the steadfast love and faithfulness of God, it's not just an idea. It's not just a concept that I sing about, but that transcendent, that eternal, that infinite, expansive ocean of love will be encapsulated and it will burst down and it will break in and it will manifest itself on earth and it will bring salvation. And I think what David is speaking about here is the hope of ancient Israel, that Israel would not forever live in the darkness and injustice of the oppressive empires around them, but one day God would act and God's steadfast love would break into the world and it would drive out all of the darkness. And taking the place of the darkness, creation would be flooded with the glory of God. And that's why he says in Psalm 57, verse five and 11, he says, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all of the earth. And I think what he's saying there is he's saying, God, I am waiting for that day. I'm longing for that day when you will ultimately break in and you will drive out the darkness and your love will flood creation. And of course, we who are followers of Jesus standing on this side 
of the cross know that God's love did break in, that eternal infinite love that reaches into the heavens was bottled up in concentrated form in Jesus of Nazareth, who in his life and in his healing ministry and in his exorcisms was driving out the chaos and bringing order where there's darkness. And he was, he was bringing forgiveness to sins and ultimately he dies on the cross and he's resurrected from the dead in victory over sin and death and darkness. And here God's steadfast love and faithfulness breaks in. And it's as if this text is an invitation to us. It's saying, look, Come to God with all of your difficulties, with all of the chaos in your life, whether it be your deep fear and anxiety over the job you had but no longer have or that you fear you may not have, whether it be you know, the, the, the diagnosis that you've received, whether it be the, the children that seem to be out of control, whether it be your parents that, that seem to be speaking just oppressive and abusive words over your life, God says, come to me and find refuge here in my strong and steadfast love that was manifest in Jesus and one day will break forth in all of creation. But the question I, I wanna ask now as we kind of move into closing is this, is how can we actually experience God as our refuge? I think for a lot of us, you know, we hear these ideas and there's something that it's just that, it's an idea, it's a concept. And, and it hasn't really broken in and, and it seems like, you know, the coin hasn't really dropped. And, you know, it's like if you go to one of those drink dispensers, you know, at Costco, you know, they have like the bottled water machines or whatever, and you, you put in a coin, and in this case in Costco, it's just a quarter. And I've had the experience of the quarter, you know, going in, but it seems like nothing happens. And what do you need to do? Well, you need to start banging on the machine until the coin drops and out pops the water. And the question is, 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 is what, what, what needs to happen? Like, what are the disciplines, what are the practices you and I can engage in that will actually cause that steadfast love of God to drop into our existential reality and to actually bring that kind of strength and courage and stability in the midst of the darkness, the kind of courage and stability that enables us to keep fighting, to keep moving forward and to keep hoping. Well, I want to suggest that this psalm teaches us at least one practice that we can engage in. Now, of course, one thing we can do that the psalm teaches us is pray, because that's what the psalm is. It's a prayer. It's an invitation to daily go to God in prayer and to bow your heart and to sit in silence before him and to root yourself in that regular discipline of prayer. But that's not the discipline that I want to highlight for you in this text. What I want to highlight is the discipline that's found at the very end of the text. And it, here it's not prayer. Here it is a, or maybe I should say it's a different type of prayer. It's a sung prayer. It's, it's singing. Look at what David says in Psalm 57, verse 7 and 8. He says, my heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. And then he says, I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, my harp and lyre. 
When I first read that, I was thinking that maybe uh, when he says, awake my glory, I thought maybe that was the name uh, that he gave to his harp, you know, because in the ancient world, the harp was the closest thing to an electric guitar. And I thought, you know, in the same way, you know, that B.B. That, uh, King, you know, named Lucille or uh, Jerry Garcia had Tiger or Prince had the cloud. You know, I thought maybe David's harp was called my glory. And he said, awake my glory, you know, and maybe he's saying that, I don't know. But surely what he's saying is he's saying, look, get up and sing. He says, make melody with the harp and lyre. He says, I will wake up the dawn. It's as if he's saying, look, there's a darkness creeping down in my soul. But what is going to cause the light to break in my soul? He says, when I wake it up with a song. And he says, I will give you thanks, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. Over the last uh, few weeks, I've been reading a book by Maya Angelou called uh, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. Such an arresting title, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. And I was kind of wondering why, 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 why was it called this? And then I got to this chapter where she describes going to her eighth grade graduation, and she was at the top of her class. And so she looked forward to this day, and within her community, uh, this, was, this was a moment to celebrate, and uh, it was their time in the Jim Crow South for the black community to really celebrate and honor the achievement of their young against all of the odds. And so she describes this day in the most magical and beautiful of terms. And uh, you know, you're reading through the chapter and you just think, oh, it's just a transcendent, beautiful day. And then she sits down for the ceremony, but then an interruption comes into the ceremony. And the white uh, board of the superintendents walks into the ceremony and he and some other white man uh, caused the principal in great dishonor and shame to be removed from his place of honor on stage. They sit there and they get up and uh, the, the superintendent or the, the board of directors gives a speech. And in this speech, he talks about the white school across the uh, river that's gonna be getting new books and a new facility and all of this. And then he begins to speak in, in ways that are, are backhanded uh, compliments really condescending insults to these graduates who had worked so hard academically. And Maya Angelou describes how her own heart was just rent open and broken, and she felt like a deep darkness crept over her soul in that moment. But then the, the white men left, and a young boy named Henry Reed, who was the class, you know, valedictorian, the A student, he gets up and he says this speech. And at the, you know, throughout the speech, she's cynically listening because he's speaking of great hopes for his people. And she thinks, what hope can there be in the midst of all of this world that we live in? And then at the end of his speech, uh, she describes him turning his back to the, from the graduating students and to the, 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 the guests at the graduation. And he starts singing a song, and the song that he sings is the Black National Anthem. And she said that in that moment, out of habit, 
all of the children and all of the moms and dads who knew that hymn, uh, who knew the song from their, their, you know, they knew it in their bones, they all just started out of habit to sing. And they joined these words, stony the road we trod, bitter the chastening rod. Felt in the days when hope unborn had died. Yet with a steady beat have not our weary feet come to the place where our fathers sighed. And then she says this, and now I I heard, I really heard for the first time the words. We have come over a way with tears have been watered. We have come treading our path through the blood of the slaughtered. And she says what turned the darkness to light at that graduation was not an argument. It was not the logic of a speech. It was a song. And she said then, we were on top again. As always again, we survived. The depths had been icy and dark, but now a bright sun spoke to our souls. And then she writes, oh, black known and unknown poets, how often have your auction pain sustained us? How will we compute the lonely nights made less lonely by your songs? And you know, many of the songs that are written in the book of Psalms are psalms that were sung in darkness and under deep oppression and suffering. And it was in these songs that light began to actually break in and give hope to the singer. You know, in the Lord of the Rings, in the very darkest hour when Frodo and Sam are walking into Sarath Ungle, in the very darkness of Mordor, they sing a song and that song gives them courage and hope. There's this great scene in the book of Acts where Paul and Silas are locked in chains. They're thrown in the deep pit of a prison and there they sing songs and their songs give them hope and give them a ballast in the midst of the chaos. There's this Seen in the Gospels where Jesus walks out from the warmth of Thursday night around a table with friends into the deep darkness of Friday. And as he walks into the dark abyss of Friday, he sings a song. You know, we need our theologians and our pastors and our priests, but we also need our musicians and our poets and our songwriters to help us give voice to deep pain in our own life and our hearts and to actually give deep hope and to reassure us with God's steadfast love and faithfulness even in the midst of the darkness. And this is what the psalmist found and this is what he was determined to do even in the midst of the darkness was to raise his voice and sing. You know, a few months ago, I, was, uh, I walked into the youth room on a Wednesday night and the students were singing and I, I was standing in the back and there were a couple students who I knew were going through a very, very dark hour. Their father only had days to live. And Jonathan, we led the group that night in the song, I raise my hallelujah in the presence of my enemies. And I watched those kids sing these words with hands lifted high, I'm gonna sing in the middle of the storm, louder and louder, you're gonna hear my praises roar. 
And you know, I think many of us would say that it is not simply the books or the sermons that have nourished and sustained us and that have kept us stable in the midst of the chaos. It's the songs. And so may God fill your own heart and your life this day with a song so that you might find great comfort and security and safety in the steadfast love of God that has been on brilliant display for us on the cross, whose glorious love will one day flood all of creation. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, we come to you now and we thank you that you have not given us only stories or theological letters to nourish and sustain our faith. You have also given us hymns. You've given us songs. And Father, I just ask that for all of my friends, all of my brothers and sisters, all of those who might be tuned in listening to us right now, who might be in a deep, dark place, I just ask, oh God, that you would trigger in their hearts and minds this week a song that would give them great stability, a song that would allow light to break in to the dark chaos that they might find themselves in. And we pray, oh God, that you would even use the words of this next song to break more of your steadfast love and faithfulness into our own hearts and lives. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen.